Hello to you. Welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday the 7th of August and hello to Jan Fran. Hello, Tom. Today on The Briefing, we've got none other than Chaser favourite Craig Rucastle, also environmental activist. Yeah, he's putting his Chaser stunt skills to work for the environment. Look, it's like all Chaser stunts. They're never a success. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he's trying. Exactly. I don't know if we will have any success with it, but he's given it a red hot go. Yeah, that's coming up in just a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day. The Treasurer says JobKeeper is being urgently expanded to help those who need it most. So more than half a million extra people are expected to sign up, basically because of Victoria's second wave. We are going to make some changes to the JobKeeper program and announcements on that are imminent. It's a demand-driven program. That's the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Yesterday, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, announced that new restrictions will leave another 400,000 more Australians out of work and hit the budget bottom line very hard. The combined effect on GDP of the stage three and four Victorian restrictions through the September quarter is expected to be in the order of 10 to $12 billion. So the government only announced that it was tightening the scheme last month, and that was before the second wave really took hold. Um, but today it's relaxing the rules by allowing full-time, part-time and long-term casual staff who are hired by July 1st to sign up instead of March 1. It's also simplifying the test for businesses to stay on the program after September. Instead of having to show that their turnover had dropped for two quarters or six months, they'll only have to show that it fell for one quarter. So the total cost of JobKeeper is now going to be around $100 billion. Isn't it lucky we had that extra $60 billion, (laughs) that accounting error? It's really coming in handy now, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I'm a bit buoyed by the fact that our government is agile enough to adapt to changes. You know, usually when a government does a backflip, it's quite negative. I think in this case, it's good to be able to react to what's going on in Victoria. And young people in New South Wales are being asked to stop going out as much. Try and modify how many places you go to. So if you have the virus and you go out five times a week to different places, you potentially could be spreading it to five different locations. And that's happened on a few occasions. It's not anybody's fault, but it's just the nature of the virus. It's so contagious. Yes, Gladys there. Yes, this comes after a number of cases where young people with COVID have been going to multiple venues. Yeah, like the man in his 20s who um, had a pretty big weekend in Sydney. He went to uh, seven restaurants and pubs and then wrapped it up with a trip to Woolies. In 48 hours. (laughs) I'm tired even thinking about that. Went for Barocca after his big weekend. No doubt. And look, you've got to, on, on, on a normal day, that'd be fine. In the middle of a pandemic, it does raise a few questions, doesn't it? Yeah, in Newcastle last weekend, another guy in his 20s went to seven venues, including a football match. Yeah. Look, the problem that we see emerging here is that people in their 20s are most likely to actually get COVID, but also most likely to spread COVID because they're out and about, and they're out and about in venues that are often quite small, a little bit airless, they're in close contact with other people. Maybe there's like dancing or yelling in someone's ear. If you have ever been to a noisy pub, you know you have to get pretty close to someone. Well, you're meant to be sitting down, but people are obviously having a few beers and getting in each other's faces. Yeah, look, the music moves people. You can't blame (laughs) them. Um, But I think it's just something to be aware of, you know. And another blow for Lebanon, days after the Beirut blast that has killed at least 157 people and injured thousands of others. Coronavirus cases have peaked to a record high of 255 daily cases. This is at the same time as thousands of people are rushing to overcrowded hospitals. 
Yeah, and help is arriving from other countries. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, visited yesterday. He toured the devastated port and he announced that an international aid conference will be held for the country in the coming days. I'm here to bring help directly to people. But on the other side, we have to launch a new political initiative. This fear, this anxiety, this anger you have is against politicians and against corruption in the country. Everything is broken. A lot of things. Yeah, you can hear the people behind him chanting revolution, revolution. Uh, Macron also called for an independent inquiry to try and work out why nearly 3,000 tonnes of the highly flammable ammonium nitrate was being stored in Beirut's central port area in the first place. And there's been some very costly meals for NRL players and coaches. South's coach Wayne Bennett has been banned from the next two games and put into a two-week COVID hold after breaching the league's strict biosecurity rules when he dined out at a Sydney restaurant on Wednesday. I don't think I was breaking any rules yesterday because I wasn't with a group. I was just myself and my partner and that was it. There was nobody else. Sat isolated. We didn't sit near anybody. Nah, you can't enjoy a good meal. Sorry, mate. (laughs) He actually admitted that he'd been out for a few before as well. Oh, right. Okay, well, it's good that he's coming clean, I guess. (laughs) Uh, He's not the only one. Dragon star Paul Vaughan will also be isolated from his squad for two weeks, for going out for breakfast in the Illawarra, south of Sydney. Yeah, I think these cases will, will stand out as big examples to everyone else in the league that they can't bend the rules. It feels like the pandemic has wiped our memories, but one of the biggest issues of the last year was climate change. Yeah, there were the massive global school climate strikes. Yes, there was Greta Thunberg. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And then there were the bushfires. What we are witnessing right now in the form of these unprecedented bushfires in Australia is the impact of human-caused climate change. So where is the climate debate now and how's the pandemic affected it? Let's find out with Craig Rucastle. Now, you might remember him from The Chaser. Next week, he's airing his second big environmental TV series. It's called The Fight for Planet A, and it's on the ABC. Australia comes in at number one, with 104 balloons worth of carbon dioxide per person every single hour. That's bigger than the USA and more than double that of China. So as well as the big picture climate questions like those ones, it also follows five households on a journey to cut their personal emissions. So this shower is running like... 24 litres a minute. Yeah. I don't think it was that bad. Oh, have shorter showers, boys. That shower is ruining their gas bill. And thanks to Craig, they found that out. So the series sort of raises the question of how much difference can we make as individuals? Craig, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. This is your second environmental series after War on Waste. And I think one of the things that makes them work is that you're not an expert. You're not preaching to us and, and sort of telling us things we can't get our heads around. You're, you're on a journey yourself as well, understanding these environmental problems and what we can do. What's that been like for you? And what, what was your biggest takeout from this series, Fight for Planet A? Look, the biggest takeaway here is just that, you know, firstly, we can do a lot. We can make a lot of changes ourselves that make a difference and that's not suggesting that we can solve it as individuals that's definitely not the case we need government and business to kind of you know step up but what we found through war and waste is that often if people themselves start trying to actually find solutions that's what pushes change from councils and you know governments well last year felt like a 
big year for climate change. Uh, you had massive school strikes like right around the world. Uh, you had Greta Thunberg. Uh, she was all over TVs, all over our screens. You had, unfortunately, our bushfires where there was a lot of talk about climate change being responsible for a longer bushfire season. Are you sort of worried at all that the pandemic in 2020 has sort of killed the momentum around the climate movement a bit? It's definitely distracted things a bit. But I think, look, there's been pros and cons, I think, that have come from the pandemic in terms of the climate movement. I think that having a period, it was a brief period of government in Australia where we saw that, you know, the experts when we listened to, there was kind of a, a bipartisan response listening to experts. There was action from business, government and individuals, and it worked initially. And that's really the model that we need for climate change. On that front, there's a, there's a positive thing. There's a bit of a negative because I think that when you get into an economic downturn, it becomes a little bit of a, you know, why not have both approach? Like, you know, we can have all jobs coming from anywhere, right? Now, the reality is that if we rebuild and we put our money into it, ensuring that we have kind of jobs in industries that aren't going to create climate problems in the future, we're going to be far better off long term. In terms of job numbers, not only job numbers, you get more jobs through those kind of industries, but also just in terms of the fact that they'll be more resilient and last longer and we won't end up with a new gas plant that, oh, surprise, surprise, we don't actually need like all of the reports suggest. But the fact that we got we asked five gas executives how to rebuild this economy, they decided we'd go with gas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, look, there's, there's pros and cons. Uh, one of the positives, I think, from the climate problem is that unlike the pandemic problem, which at the moment we're really looking at and going, we have no proper cure for, the climate solution we have heaps of cures for. We know, you know, we already have so much technology that can solve this problem. That's not the issue. It's about, you know, us actually making the changes and doing it. Yeah, well, predictions are that the pandemic is going to um, lead to a, a roughly 7% um, drop in emissions over the next year. So in the short term, it's good. But do you worry that in the longer term, as we sort of fight back in the economic recovery that when there's a choice over rebuilding the economy, someone putting someone back into work versus doing something that's right for the environment, that the environment will lose out? Yeah, I think that's the case. But but this is what, I mean, I don't want people to confuse, like talking about the fact there will be emissions drops because of this kind of lockdown period, right? I don't want people to confuse that as being that's what we're asking to do going forward long term. Mm. That's not it. Like the reality is that you can run all of your energy, you can run all of your industry, you can have manufacturing and all that kind of stuff and use renewable energy. You know, it's not an issue of we have to shut down and live in a cave to actually solve the climate problem. That's not it. It's that we've got to make the transition to the renewable energies that we'll actually be able to do, you know, long term, we'll be able to have manufacturing as part of that. So, you know, that's the problem is it's been put as this kind of dichotomy between jobs and no jobs. And that's not the case at all. And that's that's been (laughs) that kind of rationale has been put forward by by basically people trying to slow down our response to climate. And it's not the case. Like, there's actually very few jobs in those those high fossil fuel intensive industries have extremely low job numbers and have extremely high profits going back overseas. That's not where we should be pumping our money in. Like, you're going to get a lot more jobs on the street if you're basically encouraging solar, for instance, and, you know, putting solar on households than you will if you build a gas plant in the middle of nowhere. So I guess, you know, you made that point earlier that it's not really um, a binary between jobs and the environment, that actually you can have both and you can transition the economy and still do what we do and produce what we produce 
but using renewable energy. That's a massive goal. How do we even begin to head in that direction and what needs to happen? Well, we are. We are heading that direction. So there's been a massive increase. Like if you actually look at it, we we kind of do a live graph using a giant pile of coal and some, you know, tiny solar panels and that and show how much our energy mix is changing at the moment. And it's actually hugely changing over the next few years in terms of how many more renewables are coming into our grid. The, the problem is the next step and that takes needs a little bit of proactiveness from government to speed it up a little bit. But if you've got a house and you can afford to put on solar panels, do it because a, it will cut your carbon footprint. B, it will cut your, your costs over over a few years. You'll definitely be ahead in that sense. And C, it's going to be pushing more and more renewable energy into the grid. There's a bit of an argument they push back, oh, well, the grid can't handle it. It's like, you know what? They can fix the grid to deal with that problem. That's not, that's not an issue. I guess you're, you're big on individuals and households making changes to try and reduce their carbon footprints. I mean, coal from the six biggest miners in Australia, produces more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire Australian economy. So I guess the question is, how much impact do individuals and households actually have when they make changes, given that we rely so heavily on coal? If every single household in Australia chose green power, it would cut the the demand for coal in half straight away. By green power, you have to provide renewable energy. It has to be a renewable energy source. And I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I'm just saying that there's absolutely this power. People who have bought green power over the previous years have put an enormous amount more funding into renewable energies. So if, if every household in Australia got green power and demanded that they didn't get power from coal, mm. it would cut our coal use in half immediately. There is an enormous amount of power. There's an enormous amount of power in people saying, look, I'm sick of getting this, you know, if you can't put solar panels on your roof, looking into how you can have renewable energy options is, is the next step. The problem is that if I'm not saying that we can solve it through individualization, but if we take the approach of saying I'm not going to do anything because this is the government's role, we are using the same argument that our government uses for China. Our government says we're so small compared to China. Why should we bother? Let's do nothing. And if we go, we're so small, we can't solve the whole solution. It's not one person doing that. It's it's 26 million people doing that. And that has an impact. So over the last six years, all the climate solutions plans and all the money we've pumped into it, our overall carbon emissions, this is not even including land use and land clearing, has gone down by 6 million tonnes in the last six years, as in the, the amount per year. Right. So there are 9 million households in Australia, and I can promise you that they can knock a tonne out very easily of their carbon footprint. Yeah, Craig, tell us about the households that you worked with in the show. Um, you worked with five different households looking at the way they could improve their carbon um, footprint. What were some of the easiest, like, low-hanging fruit things that you found that people could do do better? Well, it, it, it's different depending on the households, and that's one of the things. Is that you, you can't do all the same things because, you know, we had one household that's a bunch of five students in a share house in Wollongong, right? They don't own the house. They can't change, you know, can't put solar panels on, can't do that kind of stuff. But we looked at their bill, for instance, and a massive part of their footprint was gas. And it was just the way they were using the showers. And it was just actually the fact that the, the gas was turned up too high. They had really inefficient shower heads and they were spending a long time in there. And we were able to make massive changes really simply just by making a few little changes to those kind of things. And they obviously saved heaps of money, which is good for a student household, but also had a big dent on their carbon footprint as well. For other households, you know, 
getting solar power or just actually just even learning what it is in your house that's creating your massive power bill, for instance. You know, mm. people were all like, oh, kids don't turn off the lights. It's like, yeah, well, it's very unlikely to be the lights that are the big problem in your house. I think you met a couple as well that left their television on for the dogs because the dogs <laughs> <laughs> the dogs needed to have a little bit of company when they were out of the you house. Yeah. Exactly. And that's not great. But the reality was that that was not – they had an enormous carbon footprint through electricity, right? It wasn't the TV being left on. Like you could almost – we turn things on and off and you could actually measure what's doing it in there. I house. believe that family – The towel rack, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I believe that towel rack. family – they had heated yeah. heated bathroom floors as well, so that probably had a little bit to do no, with it. No, this is it. It wasn't the, the TV being left on for the dog. That halogen lights throughout the house, which are really old technology and massively more inefficient, they had – heated floors that were being left on constantly, they had air conditioners and this kind of thing. And so once they actually learnt what it was that was doing it, they just changed their habits and it made a massive impact. So knowledge is kind of the first step in a sense. Craig, the other great thing about this series is that you've made a valid attempt at trying to revive the chaser style stunt, which is what the nation you know, knows and loved you for, <laughs> um, bring in dozens of trees to the front offices of some mining companies who clearly aren't doing enough to offset their emissions. You know, on the scale of chaser stunts, how would you rate this one as far as a success? Uh, look, it's like all chaser stunts. They're never a success. <laughs> that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point. You never get any success out of them. I did, I, like I was taking, it was, it was a gas company. So the major reason that our emissions are still going up is because of our gas, our LNG exporting is mm. the major reason. And I did take a large number of trees to their front offices there's a terrible moment where I I thought there was like, there was this glass door, right? And I thought it was going to open. I was kind of pushing trees and I couldn't see through the trees. And I nearly <laughs> smashed the thing through the door. <laughs> I just made this almighty sound. And I thought, oh my God, I just haven't, this has not, and so luckily I did not smash the doors. <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah, exactly. It's like all chaser stunts. It's just messing around and, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it achieves anything. Making a few, um, you know, security guards and receptionists feel uncomfortable on national television it's, and yeah. off you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Job, yeah, job no, well it's, done. It's, it's fairly rare that we get the CEO to come down. We do ask. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right, Craig. Well, thanks so much for um, giving us some tips on, I guess, how individuals can reduce their carbon emissions and also giving us a bit of an encouragement to nudge the bigger players in the right direction as well. We have the cures. we just got to do it. That was Craig Rucastle talking about his new series, Fight for Planet A, which starts on ABC TV on Tuesday at 8.30. Yeah, and there's a part of me that thinks right now is not the time to talk about climate change, but there's actually another part of me that thinks it might just be the time to talk about climate change because the issue has not gone away. Yeah, and also with a short-term drop in emissions plus um, the need to rebuild our economy, it's an opportunity to do it in a way that's actually good for the planet in the long run. Yeah, maybe this is the catalyst for change. So that's it for another week of The Briefing, Jen. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us this week and for joining us these last few weeks and for helping us hit a million downloads. It makes me very happy to know that you are out there listening. Thank you. It does make it uh, all worthwhile, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) All right, have a great weekend. Um, If you're not already following us on Instagram, at The Briefing Podcast, you can get in touch with your own story ideas, something you want us to look into. We'll speak to you Monday. Bye. A podcast one production.